0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: It's
0: Friday, July twenty second, two thousand sixteen. From Slate, it's the Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump told us, or told his voters, some things that may not be so, but are very much. What the voters feel like is so. Things like crime is rampant, police are being slaughtered, immigration's out of control. No, nope, that's not true. But I'm struggling now with what I feel. Not about Trump's points, they don't land with me, but about Trump's ability to connect with the electorate. I don't know. Speech didn't seem good to me, but for months he seemed less than good to me. He seemed awful. And yet there he is at 40, 41, 42% in the polls. Some people like him. Rather than guess if he did anything to get at the other 60%, I'll take a breath. I'll pause. We'll see the post-convention bounce polls soon. So let me say something that I do know about for sure. Something that I can explain to you. And that thing is Queen's which is a part of New York City, which a video narrated by John Voight that played at last night's convention did not seem to know. After college, Donald faced a decision. Join his father in Queens or dream big and make it in the greatest city in the world. The decision was easy. Queens is in the greatest city in the world. In fact, when Donald Trump grew up in Queens, specifically the Jamaica estate part of Queens, in specifically, specifically a 4,000 square foot mansion, his Queens was the white suburban escape from Manhattan. Yet somehow, since everyone who runs for president has to be born in a log cabin, Queens is now a backwater of strivers and real folk msnbc was buying it this morning
1: he came from queens he's had a chip on his shoulder since he got to manhattan and i think that having his daughter say that helped his populist credentials
0: it's so funny how everyone's self-conception is the same right everyone says to themselves those other people they have heirs me i'm down to earth those other people they're fancy Me, I'm hardworking. But before Trump even spoke at the convention, his billionaire or near-billionaire friend Tom Barrack showed up on stage. He runs Trump's PAC. I love this guy's style. I was baffled by this guy's substance. You learn what a man is by listening to your mother, but you learn how to be a man by watching your father. Uh, applause? Barrick spoke extemporaneously, confusingly. He seemed to have warmth and wisdom. He was bald. He had a wireless mic. He didn't have notes, but he had really good points. He, he told a story about the first business deal that he had with Trump, and it ended with this. He played me like a Steinway piano. <laughs> I then spent four months fixing everything in the hotel. A little rent-controlled tenant named Fanny Lowenstein, who was the smartest woman in the world, 83 years old. He had me buy her a piano, do the carpet. It was one of the most amazing things I had ever seen. I, I didn't get it. I did get the point that Trump once gave an autograph to the father of a terminally ill child. I will say this now, because no one else is brave enough to. Everyone is nice to terminally ill children. Also, terminally ill children cannot be cured with an autograph. What might cure them? Trump promises to repeal and replace. Oh, but Tom Barrack, obviously he's comfortable kibitzing. Kibitzing was a word he used with Wall Street, and he dropped in references to New York with ease. And the funeral was being held the night before at the Frank Campbell Funeral Hall, 82nd and Madison. Okay, good specificity. Not connected to anything else. (laughs) And I guess what he was trying to do was give you the measure of the man. I came away bemused though there was one part that made me think I could become friends with Donald Trump. He befriends the bewildered. Exactly. Tom Barrack was just a blip in this convention, but he was a bizarre one who deserved a little bit more attention today. On the show today, comedian Hari Kondabolu is here. That guy is just so damn mainstream. Hari Kondabolu is a mainstream American comic, or is he? I mean, it's in the title. I feel like I gotta say it. Was Steven Seagal on deadly ground? Was Steven Seagal <laughs> hard to kill? You know, if you want to make an assertion, you put it in the title. Does nobody beat the Wiz, Harry? Remember, remember before they were just the Wiz. You're from New York, in yeah. Queens. Yeah. I should probably say hi and welcome.
1: Oh, hello. Hey. hey. So, like...
0: so you're from you're from Queens. Yeah. You know, you grew up, and there was a store called the Wiz, and yeah. then one day it became nobody beats the Wiz. Yep. And my theory is just so they wouldn't have to back up that claim. The Wiz isn't the around
1: anymore, right?
0: There is no Wiz. There's no so, nobody beats the Wiz. I guess. So that means they got beaten. Yeah. Somebody. Yeah. What happens? <laughs> someone beat? Turns out the entire internet beats the Wiz. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But Hari, I noticed in your press materials, it says something like, the Queens-born, Brooklyn-based. And it struck me that that is actually a meaningful phrase. But Mm -hmm. there was, I don't know, probably when you were coming up, it would just be like, all right, he's from New York, but not Manhattan. Why are you making the actual borough distinction? But Queens, okay, so Brooklyn-based, that's the artistic side. But Queens-born is, you're probably born in a real multicultural community.
1: Yeah, there's two reasons why I did that. One, it's like, it means a very different thing. Thing to say Queens, at least to me, definitely. Yeah. And I think for people who get that, it's like, oh, speaking to them. And the other part of it is that I feel like such a sellout for leaving <laughs> Queens to move to... To move to Brooklyn, and I've been taking <laughs> the 20 a twenty-minute
0: of... walk. That oh it was. god,
1: <laughs> I mean to get well. Actually, I mean to get from Queens to Brooklyn on the train, an hour and a half, hour forty-five yeah. from 179th Street F train buses. Yeah, and see
0: if you're on the G, it's a little easier, right? Well, if you're, if
1: you're, on, you're the... on that side of yes. Queens, no, but I'm not talking about like Long Island City, Astoria, Queens, like the Queens that's near the city. Yeah, I'm talking about the Queens where you only went to the city when the yellow bus took you to the city.
0: Where you call it the city, even though you lived in the city. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. and and at the same time. Once I left New York and people said, Oh, you're not really from the city, you're from Queens. I got very upset. We're one of the key boroughs. <laughs> If you want to enter New York or leave New York, you go to the airport in Queens. We got a baseball team.
0: Look at the population statistics yep. bigger than Manhattan, yep. buddy. So when you go then from there to leafy New England universities, uh, yeah, was Maine. it culture shock? Huge. Yeah. Huge. I
1: mean I don't it wasn't just the New England part. It was specifically Maine mm-hmm. being as white as it, as Bowden. it is. Bowdoin College. The
0: polar Bears.
1: Oh boy, there's a lot there. I mean it's first of all like again like not very diverse the whole place I'm in Maine and coming from Queens New York City and Queens specifically, Culture Shock. Also, I never was around that much money. The price tag was huge and there were kids who didn't need loans. I don't think I understood that. And like, it's not that there weren't rich kids in Queens and in New York, but there was a diversity in a public school of different like class, you know, you had kids who were undocumented, you had kids uh, who had no money, you had kids, uh, you know, who who had tons of money and hit it and some who didn't. I mean, you had this range. At Bowdoin, there was money and you saw it. And that was really new to me to be both, like to realize I am a middle class New York City kid who went to public school and I'm brown. And all those things are not normal here.
0: Did you go to Wesleyan also?
1: That was my dream school. I went to Wesleyan my, my junior year. That was my study away. Let's it <laughs> to, to Connecticut, Middletown, Connecticut. I loved it. I loved it so much because I feel like at Bowdoin, it was like a New England prep school. It was like a school I imagined in the 50s where, you know, like lacrosse is a big deal and and sports was important, yeah. even though they were division three and Wesleyan. And, and Holden
0: Caulfield would one day matriculate. Right, into right. It, yes.
1: And and Wesleyan, I didn't know the name of the mascot until the end of the year. It's the Cardinals. Nobody talked about sports. The things that were big on campus were art, like making films. There were three improv groups. There was a stand-up group. People would get like messed up and like, you know, get drunk and all that, but yeah. they'd also go to plays and film screenings and lectures. Lectures were huge and they were always sold out they were completely full when there was visiting lectures and I'm I was amazed by also being on a campus that was so politically active during you know this was when uh, the Iraq war started so I needed that and, and I think Maine was good for me too cuz I got to see what power looked like I think you get to see like oh these kids have parents and grandparents who have buildings named after them and they got in because they're fourth generation and they're set, they they're going to school because they have to, but they're already set up.
0: This is a loaded question. You could maybe dispute the premise of it. Do you think that being in Wesleyan, you predated the oppressive political correctness of some campuses, or maybe it didn't really hit Wesleyan like it has Oberlin, or maybe you don't? Maybe you think that's overblown.
1: Yeah, I think it's overblown. Yeah. I mean, to begin with, I don't, I I don't agree with the idea of the oppressive political correctness. Just because I think it's it's a place where you're forced to think deeply about issues, and there's things that in society, after 10 or 15 years, like, finally trickle in, like, you know, the idea of, like, transgender rights, right? Now, 10 years ago, you would have said... Oh, this person is so freaked out about gender. and How it's just oppressively politically correct. What is this trans thing? And then right. ten or fifteen years later, oh, this is this is standard, and this is actually a mainstream discussion. So,
0: right with with my ages, oh African American, oh, right, right, different phrase every day, and then and
1: Allison's like yeah, oh, I, let's we be a little to get sensitive to yeah. other people, and we maybe actually, try
0: to be accurately describing the actual right. ethnicity. On the new album, you talk about the worst gig you played, which was in Denmark, and yeah. make this great
1: joke. And I still get really nervous uh, before. I go on stage and nowadays I remind myself that it can never be as bad as the worst show I've ever done right which happened in Aarhus, Denmark okay (laughs) for those of you who are unfamiliar with Denmark Denmark is what happens if Portland gets its own country right (laughs) that means whatever you think it means right
0: Okay, but you're playing for a crowd in Portland. Do you change that joke depending on the crowd, or is Portland so ubiquitous we yeah. all get what that means?
1: Oh, you mean outside of Portland? Yeah, like if you're oh, pl- people get it. Okay, yeah, people get it. You know, <laughs> I just, I mean, Portland to me is such a unique kind of white privilege that I'm just, I'm so confused by. And, you know, uh, W. Kamau Bell, my friend, who has a he has a show on CNN, the United Shades of America. He had a whole episode about Portland gentrification and race. And, you know, apparently it was a huge buzz in Portland because he he was a really thoughtful, you know, way to, to pose a question like, how could this place be so liberal when there are no people of color here, or not that many people of color here are the ones that are there getting pushed out. So, yeah, I mean, when I'm in Portland, certainly I'm, I'm going to be pushing harder. I remember there's a part where I riff about uh, Halloween costumes and how they're feeling guilty because it's Portland so they probably wore blackface at some point and they probably thinking they were being ironic. So, I mean... You're I th- right. Two, two Halloweens ago. And there was no minority was. to be like, hey.
0: So... This also brings to mind an episode that you had on your podcast, Politically Reactive. With W. Kamau Bell. Yep. yep. And it was a discussion of code speech, of of R- dog, dog whistles. Yeah. And in it, your guest, who I thought was great, quoted George Wallace. And it's he's an academic, exact quote. He's about to go in to deliver his concession speech on the night he's lost. And he turns to some of his cronies and he says no other son of a bitch is ever going to out-nigger me again. (laughs) (laughs) And then you do this thing where you pull back, and then Kamal says to you, did that make you uncomfortable? Because he Uh, said the N-word. Right. And I'm thinking... Well, Hari's a person of color, but the N-word lands to him, I don't know, differently than it lands to Kamal and differently than it lands to me. So I right. just wanted to ask you about that.
1: Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, it still makes me cringe. Of course. But know. it would make
0: me cringe, too. Sure. And But no, I, by the way, yeah. for the record, I wanted the academic to say it. I wanted to hear the exact quote, and I don't believe in right. watering down you know, factual history like that.
1: It, it, you know what it is? It's what makes it hard is the the word is so sharp mm-hmm. and loaded that even though it's not the intention you still feel something it's almost like you still feel the 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 aftershock even though you're miles away from the epicenter and that's what it feels like
0: and the argument there is that and for two sentences later you can't even understand what he's saying because that's it exactly right, because pulls you out of the exactly
1: moment, yeah. and and, and that's, I think, why we decided to do that, because even though we didn't pull this out of the conversation, we also understood how we could, and which is one of the great things I, I, about our podcast. I feel like we're really self-aware, and we're also reacting to how we think the audience is going to react.
0: Well, a lot of your jokes do that, too, like you do the feminist dick joke. Right, right, right? right. But then there's also the part, I guess you've expanded that joke yeah, over the years. I have. So there's also the part where you acknowledge the gender-normative nature of the joke.
1: Yeah, the possibility of a first... Female president, and we've never had a female president in this country. And a big reason for that is sexism, right? Because you hear men in this country say things like, "You know, we can't have a female president. You know what's going to happen if we have a female president, right? Once a month, she's going to have her period and have PMS and go crazy. She'll ruin the country." There are men who actually believe this. There are men who actually believe that a woman because of her biology has her judgment impaired once a month. Well, I'm a man who happens to have a penis and testicles and my judgment is impaired every five to seven minutes. I'll be honest with you. I wake up some mornings with my judgment impaired. And that joke answers the question, Hurry Kondabolu, can you write a feminist dick joke? Yes, it can be done. But can you write a joke that doesn't reinforce gender binaries, Hurry? Look, okay, I'm doing the best I can. I mean, I, I did say happens to have a penis and testicles, which implies that not all men have a penis and testicles. I mean, perhaps I can write a postscript at the end of the joke, which, includes the transgender community in some small way. And perhaps I can write a joke that truly is more inclusive in the future. No, it's too late. You were my favorite comedian and now I hate you. I hope you fucking die. Look, I'm doing the best I can. Please stop yelling at me, all right? Please stop yelling at me, imaginary Tumblr conversation in my head.
0: Are you making fun of oversensitivity there? Or are you saying that's legitimate, do you think?
1: I'm saying it's legitimate. I'm saying that trans folks have every right to feel uncomfortable by how I talked about uh, or implied that being a woman has these parts or being a man has these parts. And I think the part I'm making fun of is the Tumblr part. Now, the Tumblr part isn't about the sensitivity of trans people. It's about the fact that even when you attempt to uh, resolve something on the internet or improve something that you've done or apologize, it's too late.
0: Are there instances where you think that a joke is funny and you believe that and then someone either raises an objection or you think about it and you realize it's a valid objection?
1: Well, that joke, in in particular, the feminist dick joke, absolutely. There There was a trans man after a show I did who came up to me and very politely talked about uh, their frustration with that particular joke. And, I, and we were going back and forth, and I explained, like, you know, you're right, but I'm performing in the basement of a sports bar <laughs> if, late at night to drunk people. Like, I can't explain gender theory. I can't, it's, it's not going to make sense. I have to, to just to get a feminist dick joke out, I had to find a clever way to, to spin it and say it quickly enough so it's punchy. And we were having this discussion, and at a, a certain point, I, I asked him, is it because when you come to my shows, you feel a degree of safety? You don't feel anywhere else in a comedy club? And they said, yes. And I said, "Is it?" Be- and now do you feel like I disappointed you? Uh, he
0: said, like, yeah, a little bit. So, do, you th- do you think yeah. given the makeup of your audience, it's harder for you in some ways than mm-hmm. other comics? Or maybe you can make the case that it drives you to v- make better jokes.
1: Both. Yeah, both. I mean, certainly it, it means that I have less room for error. I have things I do that nobody would consider errors that my f- folks would think are errors or, or mistakes. It, it means, you know, I but
0: do you agree or does that drive you crazy?
1: Both. I mean, yeah. I think they're they're right f- from the standpoint of politics, but from the standpoint of a comedian you figure it out by failure you 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 have to go through a certain process and i'm and that's not to say you shouldn't be thoughtful about the words you use i'm just saying it's not a guarantee. That's the nature of comedy. I put it like this. There's offense and there's defense in comedy. When you're playing to a crowd that is heckling you, that's, that is, disagrees with your point of view, that's not making it easy, you got to be on, on the defensive. You find ways to shut down certain arguments. You find ways to develop a thick skin. When you have a crowd that loves you, when you're with a bunch of friends who, you know, that you don't know yet— things just come you don't even think about it you just say hilarious things because the context seems there you don't need to explain as much and you're free and you're natural and that's what it feels like when I'm playing a rough crowd and what it feels like when I'm playing a bunch of people that are my fans
0: wait do you think your rough crowd though is rough in a different way than most comedians rough crowd is like Mm -hmm. most comedians rough crowd will be you know the stuff that you do they you know might object to it just because it's too liberal for them I think your rough crowd might be that was insensitive even though so it's nah, nah. cuz
1: I get that in emails after. Okay. My my crowd are, aren't the type to interrupt and you know that those are usually the folks who are on the right who are like yeah. hate my guts like the folk I get three-page emails about a thing I said which they wish I didn't say like it's deeply emotional those are my fans but like uh you know the people that hate me you know like they they also send me death threats after the show but which I've been getting a lot of the last week which is horrendous but like Why what happened in the last week? I put up some i said something about all lives matter i said this on twitter a while ago somebody made a meme out of it that was passed around so i reposted it this is right after the recent uh slate of police shootings yeah and i put it up on facebook and i said here's a reminder white people in response to why they're using all lives matter like when you say that mm-hmm. you should be focused on those issues not about just disputing black lives matter or if you really believe that this is what it means Next thing I know, it goes viral, and it's all, like, people who hate my guts sending me messages. How so One guy said he wanted to bash my head in until it was as soft as a pillow. Uh. One guy said that he couldn't wait to read my name in an obituary. Another guy just, it was simple, like, I'm going
0: to slash your throat. Like Really, nothing burnishes an all-lives-matter <laughs> argument than yeah. horrible death threats.
1: <laughs> exactly. like. Yeah. If all this lives matter, thing. all lives matter. I'm gonna kill you. Like this
0: what? would be one thing if your three word, three syllable <laughs>
1: phrase wasn't all lives matter. It's. I mean, it doesn't make sense. And uh, you know, I thought the first day I'm like, all right, this is. I get this. Like this happens to me like a couple of these every month, but thi- it's been like 40 or 50 nonstop and comments and
0: messages. And I'm like, you know, this is so ugly. And yet, I assure you, despite all of the reaction from the All Lives Matter crowd, Hari Kondabolu is indeed a mainstream American comic. He's also Politically Reactive, which is his new podcast. Great guests, great comedy, as always. Hari, really good to meet you. Thank you so much. I, I'm really proud of this record, and I hope people pick it up. And the album comes out July 22nd. It's on the Kill Rock Stars label. That's that's always what comedians want to do. Hari's touring the country, too. Check out com to figure out if he's near you. And that's it for today's show. Mary Wilson learned how to be just producer by listening to her mother, but losing money at the Greyhound track with her father. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is the anchovy in the Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, Caesar Salad. And Andy insists that the chef mix the Caesar salad table-side like a regular person who likes to work with his hands. The gist, we got more votes than anyone in the Democratic primaries of 1789. oom pru de pru and thanks for listening.